Good morning, and what a joy to be with you all here today. Thank you for the privilege of being here on this occasion. Good to see brothers and sisters that I've known over the years, uh, various places, uh, all together here. Uh, particularly joyful to be here on this occasion with Jeremy and Melanie. It's a privilege to address you anytime from God's Word. We're here as God's people to hear God's Word. So let's open our Bibles to First Peter. First Peter, chapter 5. Beginning of verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That will never fade away. Many of you have no doubt read this passage before. Jeremy, I'm sure you have studied it. Uh, As we meditate on it, I want us to think of more of what it means to be a pastor. Uh, We feel the weight of it this morning. Uh, All these matters interest us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, let me just speak on behalf of this congregation for a minute and say I'm sure you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to be here any time they gather together. Uh, These verses and our meditation on them may help you uh, with unusual quickness and clarity to get a taste for what it means to follow Christ and what a Christian church is. A Christian church is a collection of people who are committed to God and to each other uh, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that God has sent His only Son to live a life of complete trust in His Heavenly Father and to die on the cross as a substitute in the place of all of us who would turn from our sinful mistrust of God and would rely on Him. God raised Him from the dead, literally, physically, to show that He accepted this sacrifice. He ascended to heaven and presented that sacrifice to God. And He calls all now to turn from our sins and trust in Him. And that's you today. You can have a new life, even today, if you will. But this subject of the ministry particularly interests Christians, no doubt about that. Anything that gives us examples of how to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, and pastors are supposed to be examples, they're supposed to help us. Peter says that here. So if we're really Christians, we want to follow Christ, and we're anxious to get anything that will help us do that. Even more, though, than merely Christians... Our topic is of interest to church members. Uh, Of course, all of those who are normally Christians will be members of a gospel-preaching local church near them. They'll meet together regularly with these brothers and sisters for, for edification to be built up and for encouragement. But we know today some Christians have been poorly taught on this. They don't know that they're to do that. Though something in them tells them that there's this need for that. Um... Others have knowingly, sinfully neglected it. But normally, for the most part, 
Christians know they're to be church members, and they are. And for church members, few topics could be of more absorbing interest and significance than what those who lead them are commanded by God's word to do for God's glory and for their own good. And if that kind of interest typifies all church members, how much more the members of this particular local congregation on this wonderful morning. So after years of halting faithfulness through times thick and thin with trials, God seems to be answering prayer. And surely this morning your ears are eager to hear how it is that you may honor and bless the Lord today in your life together. Uh, Surely you have great interest in knowing what God's word has to say to you, to tell you of the one who will lead you and of uh, what he is to do, to be like, to aspire to. It's good for you to know what your pastor's job description is, to hold him accountable to it, to encourage him in it, to provide for him, to pray for him, uh, to assist him in fulfilling it, and even finally, when the time comes, to replace him. One member that this topic is of special significance to is Jeremy's wife, Melanie. Melanie, you are called to co-labor with Jeremy. You are married to him, and you married him when he was already headed into the ministry. Uh, God had already done some good work through uh, our brother, Pastor William Ng, in discipling him. God has made you to suit him, to be fruitful alongside him. And God here in this place has called you to take up that chief care of the pastor of this congregation. Sometimes people wonder, what is the role of the pastor's wife? Is she Mrs. Pastor? Is she the first lady of the church? Is she in charge of everything? Is she the vice president? Is she in charge of the music and the women's ministry? None of that's in the Bible. I'll tell you what's in the Bible. She's in charge of caring for your pastor. The most important thing she can do, the undisputably biblical thing she can do, is care for Jeremy Young. That is Melanie's ministry. That is what you are to encourage her in. That's what you are to have expectations of her for. Sister, I pray that God will strengthen you for this task and bless you through it. And of course, this passage you'll note there in verse 1 is to the elders among you. You see that verse 1? To the elders among you. That's in the plural. To the elders among you. Now that doesn't tell you there were multiple elders in that one local church. Because if you go back to chapter 1. You see this is written to the churches scattered throughout modern day Turkey. So it just. For all we know there would be one pastor in each church. Or multiple pastors. But we know from elsewhere in the New Testament. It was typical for churches in the New Testament period. To have a number of men serving in a single local church as elders. And Jeremy Ng is an elder here. Uh, he is another pastor, assistant pastor here. So, Jeremy, this must be an absorbing topic for you as well, here, this passage in First Peter 5. And for Jeremy Ng, God has called you too to the pastoral ministry of this church. You also must shepherd this congregation. You are charged by God to do this. So, these warnings are yours. This charge is yours. These hopes are yours. 
But as much as they interest even Jeremy Ng and others who will take up the work of eldering here, they interest Jeremy Yong more than anyone else. Because practically, this charge will fall especially on him. His leadership of any other elders by counsel and prayer, by training and time, his leadership of this congregation will have much to do with the prosperity of this eldership and this church. The other elders will likely have jobs, like Jeremy Ng does, four days a week, uh, and serve as elders. But you, Jeremy, have felt called by God, and now this congregation has agreed, uh, to make your work, your job, being the pastor of this church. You have a unique responsibility. You will have unique opportunities as you teach this church from week to week. You have a special burden. I want us in this time to consider some practical faithfulnesses that Jeremy especially is now being called to as the pastor of this church. But before we do that, let's make sure we notice the most important thing in our passage. If you were looking at this passage, just put your eyes down on the passage. Open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. to 4. What would you say is the most important thing in the passage? I, I think it's right there in verse 4. Peter writes of Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. You can tell because good leaders, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Rick, it's a special joy and delight to have you here, brother. May I just commend you for your years of holding down the fort here? of preaching God's word. Praise God for that. Uh, out of love for God and these people, you've supplied the congregation's need for God's word, preached for years. So you and your wife have given to this congregation. That's a wonderful thing. So take hope from verse 4, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's better than any retirement plan the annuity board could have for you. We need the retirement plan, but this is better. It will last longer. You know? I just know as a pastor of my church, our church has been around since the 1880s, 1870s, I was so aware of the pastoral work of the others who had gone before me as I labored in people's lives. It was just clear that you know, some of these individuals had had periods of fruitfulness under the ministry of these other brothers before me. And I'm so thankful for that. And Jeremy won't be the last pastor of this church unless Jesus comes back during his life. He's getting it ready for the next guy. You know, the church is Christ's. And so the reward comes from the chief shepherd for us when he returns. The ancient Greeks saw the pelican uh, beating its breast with its beak. I don't know if you've seen a pelican do that before. But they thought that the bird was plucking its breast to feed its young with its own blood. The early Christians adopted this as a picture of what Christ has done for Christians. That he has fed us and given us life by his own blood for us. This is what a good leader, a good shepherd, a good pastor does. He lays down his life for his sheep. We have read of pastors doing this. We've heard of pastors doing this. We've seen pastors doing this in imitation of Christ. But these are the years and the days, and this is the place, Brother Jeremy, where you must do this. This is what God is calling you to do here. 
It's very practical, doesn't it? To that end, in our time together this morning, I want to simply share with you some reflections on four crucial aspects of pastoral ministry. And Jeremy, I trust after all of our years of association, nothing I'm going to say will surprise you. I pray that as I share, you will be especially reminded and encouraged and that the church will be built up. So I'm going to refer to a lot of different verses, which I don't normally do, but for this special occasion, I will. Four points, four simple points. Number one, preaching. When I first interviewed with the pulpit committee at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, the church I now serve in Washington, I said that I was happy for every aspect of my public ministry to fail if it needed to, except for the preaching of God's Word. That was the one thing that I understood I would have unique responsibility for. Now, what kind of thing is that for a prospective pastoral candidate to say to a church? I was just trying to get across that there is only one thing that is biblically necessary for building the church that's the fountainhead of all the other things, and that is the preached Word of God. The other gods are fakes. They don't talk. They're not real. Our God really exists. He made the world and everything in it, and he has talked. He has talked to us in his word. And so what the pastor does is bring God's word to God's people. And that's what fundamentally feeds God's people. Others can do everything else in the congregation that I was responsible for, but I was set apart by the congregation for the public teaching of God's word. The word of God would be the fountain of our spiritual life, both as individuals and as a congregation. And God's word has always been his chosen instrument to create, to convict, to convert, to conform his people. God uses his word to create faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Uh, The Word of God performs work in believers. Or Hebrews chapter 4, the well-known verse. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is what He uses to give us new birth. James advises in James 1, in humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word saves us. Uh, I've I've sometimes heard uh, some preachers attack other preachers for worshipping the Bible. Usually the preachers that are attacked for worshipping the Bible don't worship the Bible. They worship God who reveals himself in the Bible. Friends, this is strong language in the Word about itself. Peter also claims regenerating power for God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 1, earlier in the letter. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word which was preached to you. So there's a creating, conforming, life-giving power in God's word. The gospel is God's way of giving life to dead sinners and to dead churches. He doesn't have another way. It's this way or no way. So if you want to work for renewed life and health and holiness in your church... You must work according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, you risk running in vain. God's word is his supernatural power for accomplishing his supernatural work. That's why our eloquence, 
our creativity, our innovations, our programs are so much less important than we think. That's why we as pastors must give ourselves to preaching, not programs. That's why we need to be teaching our congregations to value God's word over programs. Preaching the content and intent of God's word is what God uses to call and build his people. God's word builds his church. So preaching his gospel is primary. Now one thing that means for you, Jeremy, is that you must give yourself to the study of God's word. We are ministers of the word. And we who are ministers of the word must give ourselves to faithfully read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, as Cranmer put it, the holy scriptures and such studies as help us to know and understand them better. What did Paul say to Timothy, famously? Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So congregation, my challenge to you is I would challenge you to require Jeremy Young to give himself to preaching the word. Jeremy, give yourself to preaching the word. Number two, prayer. Acts chapter 6, what did the apostles say they were doing? Giving themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. In your personal life, pray. In your home, pray. In your meetings with others, pray. In your elders' meetings, your members' meetings, pray. In your public services, devote so much time to prayer that nominal Christians are bored by all the time talking to the God they only pretend to know. You want to attract real Christians and hungry non-Christians. And you want to be used of God to awaken nominal Christians to the fact that there is so much more than they've imagined in God. And one of the ways you do that is by praying. Diligently call upon God in prayer for true understanding of His Word so that you may be able by the Scriptures to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine and to withstand and convince those who oppose the truth. Prayer shows our dependence on God. It honors Him as the source of all blessing. And it reminds us that converting individuals and growing churches are His work, not ours. Jesus reassures us that if we abide in Him and His words abide in us, we can ask what we will, anything according to His will, and know that He will give it to us. What a promise. What then should you pray for as you begin your labors here? Well, let me suggest five things. And these kinds of prayers of intercession are good. They bring glory to God. In our morning service at our church in Washington, we always have a prayer of praise. And Christians are used to praising God, and we do that in song as well. We also have a prayer of confession, which sometimes surprises people, but I think that brings glory to God as we say, yeah, and you're telling the truth about us too. When you say all those bad things about us in your word, you're right on every one of them. So we're just telling God he's right. But we also praise him when we intercede, when we ask for things. Because we ask knowing that he wants to give. And that he's able to give. And that we need it. So we are showing our public dependence upon him. And that brings him glory and honor too. So he is getting praise and glory through all those different ways of prayer. So interceding specifically, what more appropriate prayers first could a pastor pray for the church he serves in the prayers of Paul? So grab a copy of Don Carson's Call to Spiritual Reformation. Now I think a new edition praying with Paul or the prayers of Paul. 
and just pray through those prayers in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Allow these prayers to be a starting point for praying Scripture broadly and consistently. Instruct your church members on how they can pray, uh, pray for the ministry, pray for you. Two, pray that your preaching of the gospel would be faithful and accurate and clear. You never want a non-Christian to come into the church service and to leave not knowing how they can be saved, at least not if it's your fault. It's their own fault, that's their own fault. They stayed up too late last night and fall asleep, well, that's their business. But you want to be clear from your side. Number three, pray for the increasing maturity of the congregation. That your local church would grow in corporate love and holiness, that the fruit of the Spirit would abound, that sound doctrine would be there, and that that the church would have such a testimony in the community that it would be distinctively pure and attractive to unbelievers. Number four, pray for sinners to be converted and the church to be built up. Pray for sinners to be converted and for the church to be built up. And number five, pray for opportunities for yourself and other members to do personal evangelism. Don't take being a pastor as a pass or an excuse. In fact, you don't need to do evangelism anymore. So pray about such matters publicly in your services. Advertise that you depend on God by praying and pray personally. Uh, One of the most practical things you can do for your own personal prayer life and for the prayer lives of other church members, I think, is to assemble that church membership directory, you know, with pictures of every member right there. Here's mine right here. My most important book in ministry, my Bible. My second most important book, my church membership directory. So these are the people that I understand before the Lord in Hebrews 13. I am especially accountable for, in a way I'm not, for a Christian who heard me preach at a wedding yesterday, or, or you guys. I don't have this kind of responsibility for you guys. Um, I have a special responsibility for these people. So I need to give myself diligently in prayer for them. Um, so pray for uh, the members of your church. Encourage them to be praying for each other. Don't have those directories just for the staff but make it common that the members have these directories, that they can use them themselves, and know that the way we do our directory, uh, First Baptist Church, Hacienda Heights, we'll be praying for you guys, uh, as long as uh, Jeremy and Jeremy are here, because they're both in the back of our membership directory as former staff and interns, so we have listed where they are now, what they're doing, what their email address is, and we keep praying for them. So it's, it's not uncommon for us in a Sunday morning service to pray for First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights, California. Um, so know that we will continue to do that. This directory is a powerful tool. Uh, use it well yourselves in ministry. Encourage your congregation through it. So model for your congregation faithfulness in praying through the directory in your own devotional times and in publicly encouraging them to pray through the directory in a daily sense themselves. Take a page or two uh, each day. Your prayers for people don't have to be long, just biblical. You know, Take a phrase from Scripture that you read this morning and pray that for each person. Uh, pray a meaningful sentence or two from what you know is going on in their lives at present. Um, get to know the sheep of the flock so well that you can pray for them more particularly. And for those that are new or you don't know well yet, simply pray for them what you're praying for yourself in your own scripture reading. But however you do it, model praying the kind of prayer for others and encouraging the congregation to join you. Not just what you do, but you're leading them to do that so that they're praying for each other. That can be a powerful influence for the growth in the church. I think it encourages a kind of selflessness in the church as they begin to realize, you know what, whether or not I like that third hymn today, 
is so incredibly unimportant compared to what Melanie's going through. So I'm praying for Melanie, and I don't care that much whether I like the particular hymn. You know, so it just it reorients people toward the things that God cares about, and takes the kind of consumer mentality out. So just get them to pray. I think it's one of the most important things to help cultivate a corporate culture, uh, a culture of life together. Pray. Pray that this will gradually come to characterize your church as people are faithful to pray. So, Jeremy, give yourself to prayer. Number three. Number one is preaching. Number two is prayer. Number three, personal discipling relationships. One of the most biblical and valuable uses of your time as pastor here, Jeremy, is to cultivate personal discipling relationships in which you regularly meet with a few people one-on-one to do them good spiritually. I don't need to say much about this. Congregation, let me just say you to, to you that you hurt yourself when you discourage Jeremy from having personal friends. He needs them, and as he ministers to them, they will be blessed, and in turn the whole congregation will be blessed. So pray against any tendencies to jealousy or gossip in this. Uh, when I went to seminary, we were warned against having friends in the congregation. I think that is carnal and ungodly advice. I think the congregation should be mature enough to realize that one guy can't have 50 friends equally. It's just not going to happen, let alone if the church grows 100 or 200. It's just it's, You have to let him have friends. He's a real human being. Encourage him in that. Members of the church, join with your pastor in this ministry. So invite people after the Sunday service to call you in order to get together during the week to run an errand together or swap babysitting or, or get coffee or a meal together. Those that express interest in calling and meeting up will often be open to getting together again. And as you get to know them, you could maybe even suggest a book for the two of you both to read and then talk about uh, on however often you can get together kind of basis. And this often opens up, and let me just say, reading a book with people is often lame. It just doesn't seem to do very much. It gets some information there. It doesn't matter. It's an excuse that gets you to spend time together, and then you begin getting to know each other, and other areas of your life open up. And if you learn things about theology while you're doing it, that's also awesome. But it helps you get to know each other better. So use books as good tools for that. Whether or not you tell this other person that you're discipling them, is immaterial. What matters is that you initiate, that you continue to reach out in love. The goal is to get to know them, to love them in a distinctively Christian way by doing them good spiritually. So initiate personal care and concern for others. Uh, The practice of personal discipling is helpful on a number of fronts. It's obviously a good thing for the person being discipled uh, because they're getting biblical encouragement and advice from somebody who may have walked a little further along the way in following Christ. So in this way, discipling can function as another channel through which the Word can come into the lives of the members and be worked out in the context of personal fellowship. But it's also good for the one who is discipling as well, whether whether you're Jeremy or the other Jeremy or some other member, because it encourages you to think about discipling not as something that only super-Christians do, but as something which real Christians do, as something that is part and parcel of your own discipleship of Christ. Like I said in the previous hour, you know, when somebody says they're following Jesus, 
But they're not helping other people follow Jesus? I just don't know what they mean when they say they're following Jesus. I mean, how is it following Jesus if you're not helping anybody else follow Jesus? Which is a good question. Talk about that over lunch. See if you can figure that one out. Members need to know that spiritual maturity is not simply about their quiet times, their prayer times, but it's about their love for other believers and their concrete expressions of that love. So uh, a healthy byproduct of non-staff members, there's one thing for Jeremy Young to do this, but a healthy byproduct of non-staff members discipling other members is that it promotes a growing culture of a distinctively Christian community in which people are loving one another, not simply as the world loves. I'm from a non-Christian family. i got family members who love me really well who are not Christians. But they don't love like Christians. And they don't love because we're both in Christ. Uh, that's just different. We love as people, not as the world loves, but as followers of Christ who are working together to seek to understand and live out the implications of God's word for our lives together. These kinds of relationships help both spiritual and numerical growth. And your church has a, a kind of oasis feel of real life in the midst of a world that's spiritually dead. Jeremy, another healthy byproduct of your personal discipling other members, I think it helps to break down any defensive resistance there is to you in the congregation. And if you think defensive resistance is only there in the hearts of the people who were here before you came, but everybody who comes once you're the pastor, they know what they're getting into, that's just a young and foolish thing to think. No, you will have defensive resistance against you from now until the day you're no longer a pastor. It's just part of the territory. It's what happens. People are suspicious. Change will always meet resistance. But as you open up your own life to others, and as they begin to see that you are genuinely concerned for their spiritual welfare, they're going to be more likely to see you as a caring friend and as a spiritual mentor and a godly leader, and they're going to be less likely to misunderstand your initiatives for change, whether it's in their own life or in the church at large, as some kind of personal power grab or self-centered ego trip or overly critical negativism. So developing these kind of relationships establishes personal knowledge of yourself, which is helpful in nurturing personal trust of your character and your motives and growing an appropriate level of confidence in your leadership among the congregation. It gradually breaks down the sort of we versus us uh, barrier, which sadly often, I think, but stands between a, a weary congregation and a young pastor. Uh, and it's helpful as a way of sort of paving the way for biblical growth and change. A word to the congregation here. Jeremy McLean, a brother who was an elder in our congregation, another Jeremy who was an elder in our congregation, who's now just gone to do a church plant with the Vidyan Yubile and Matt Schmucker in Anacostia. Uh, Jeremy made a great observation not too long ago when we were in an intern discussion and one of the interns was commenting on our elders' meetings how wonderful it was to see, we have 20-some-odd elders, uh, how wonderful it was to see these men just giving themselves to elder and shepherd the church. And it was a good comment and a comment we often get from interns that come in from outside and they're impressed with the spiritual care of the church. But Jeremy then made a very wise comment. And he said, and would you notice that God has blessed us also with members who are willing to be shepherded? How so wise of Jeremy, typically. You know, it's, it, it is a blessing of God to give you a good pastor. It's also a blessing of God for you to be willing to be pastored to be humble enough to learn, to profit 
from God's work in somebody else. What a wonderful thing. This life is short as it is. God doesn't have to provide for us like he does. How kind of us. How kind of him to give to us shepherds like that. So Jeremy and First Baptist Church, give yourself to doing good to each other spiritually. Pray that God establishes culture of personal discipling relationships. Number four, patience. Exactly what you're exercising right now is necessary in Jeremy's ministry. When I arrived at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I waited three months before I preached my first Sunday morning sermon. I simply attended. I had asked for this time in conversations that I had before I arrived. When I explained my reasons, they agreed. I meant to be showing respect to the congregation. I wanted to understand what they were used to, what they were accustomed to. Showed them I wasn't in a hurry to change everything. Uh, I realize that not all of us have the luxury of waiting three months uh, to preach after our arrival there, but Jeremy, I understand that, you know, Rich afforded you a couple of years where he was still doing like half the preaching. And so, so you've, you've had a, a good run here of being able to kind of get used to this congregation with help you've been watching and appreciating God's work here, I think, longer than you've been doing all the preaching here. And that's a, that's a wonderful gift from God. That's a stewardship. That kind of patience is good. Brother, run at a pace that the congregation can keep up with. Now, of course, there's some things you, you might need to change rather quickly. That happens in a church. There'll be seasons in the future where change will need to happen, and it will need to happen quickly. But as much as possible, do things quietly and with an encouraging smile, rather than loudly and with a disapproving frown. You remember the first five years conference, the Beatty's message on loving and encouraging your congregation. Just go watch that again. You know, just go listen to that. We are indeed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's true. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But that is how Paul tells Timothy we're to do it, with great patience and instruction. So make sure that the changes you want to implement are biblical or at least prudent, and then patiently teach people about them from God's word before you expect them to embrace the changes that you're encouraging. So this patient instruction is the biblical way to sow broad agreement with the biblical agenda in the flock of God. And once this broad agreement is sown, change is less likely to be divisive and unity less prone to fracture. So as you work for change, also work to extend genuine Christian goodwill towards people. I love 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome. You need to be the kind of guy who can have your arm chewed on and you stand there and just keep smiling. Spurgeon talks about how the preacher needs one deaf ear. That's just so true. They don't have to know which one's deaf. (laughs) The person talking to you, but you need to have one. You need to know when to turn it. Paul says, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, that perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So the key to displaying and actually having this kind of patience, I think, is to have a right perspective on time, on eternity, and success. Let me just give you these three little subpoints real quickly. Time, eternity, and success. Time. Most of us think it only, I don't know, five or ten years down the road, if that. 
But patience in the pastorate requires thinking in terms of 20, 30, 40, even 50 years of ministry. I think that puts our difficulties into perspective. Get on the Nine Marks website and listen to that interview I did years ago with John MacArthur. You know, where John talks about five years into his ministry, the staff revolting, and he really thought that was about to be it. But now, 35 years after that, when John's still there, you see something of pastoral faithfulness in the same church. He's persevered over the long haul, and now he's seeing what happens when a pastor stays 35 years longer than he should have from a human perspective. You know, exponential fruitfulness, a culture of godly graciousness and joy. So are, are you in it with FBC for the long haul? 20, 30, 40 years? Or are you figuring on moving up the ladder by taking a bigger church in five or ten years? Are you building a congregation or a career? Stay with the congregation. Keep teaching. Keep modeling. Keep leading. Keep loving. So that's time. Number two, eternity. As pastors, one day we will be held accountable by God for the way we led and fed his lambs. Hebrews 13, 17, James 3, 1, you know these texts. All our ways are before him. He will know if we used the congregation simply to build a career. He will know if we led them or left them prematurely for our own convenience and benefit. He will know if we drove his sheep too hard. Shepherd the flock in a way that you will not be ashamed of on the day of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. That's eternity. That's like the hope I mentioned earlier that we have when he appears. Number three, success. Jeremy, be careful. We talked about that this morning in the Q&A before this. If you define success in terms of size, your desire for numerical growth will probably outrun your patience with the congregation and perhaps even your fidelity to biblical methods. Either your ministry among the people will be cut short uh, you'll be fired or you'll resort to methods that will draw a crowd without preaching the true gospel you will trip over the hurdle of your own ambition but if you define success in terms of faithfulness well then I think you're in a position to persevere and you're released from the demand of immediately observable results freeing you for faithfulness to the gospel's message and methods leaving numbers to the Lord. I love whoever it is Charles Bridges is quoting when he says, you know, the seed may lie in the earth until we do and then spring up. Oh, we've got to have that perspective. It seems ironic at first, but trading in size for faithfulness as the yardstick for success is often the path to legitimate numerical growth. It seems like God wants to entrust his flock to those shepherds who do things his way. Confidence in the Christian ministry does not come from personal competence or charisma or experience. It doesn't come from having the right programs in place or jumping on the bandwagon of the latest ministry fad, which you guys in Southern California are always particularly good at. 
It, it doesn't even come from having a degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary or experience at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, the United Christian Church of Dubai. No, much like Joshua in the Old Testament, our confidence is to be in the presence and power and promises of God. More specifically, confidence for becoming and being a pastor comes from depending on the power of the Spirit to make us adequate through the equipping ministry of Christ's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, so how is it that the Spirit makes us adequate? What instrument does the Spirit use to make us adequate? It's not a program. It's God's Word. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Why does He do all that? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 The one thing necessary is the power of God's word. That's why preaching and prayer will always be paramount. No matter what fads are up right now, preaching and prayer. One of my favorite things to hear at the end of a weekender is a 60-year-old pastor coming up to me saying, like, this weekend has been so encouraging to me because I see I don't have to do everything in the world. I just need to give myself to preaching to prayer, and that's just reinvigorating. I love hearing that. Brother, start off that way. Just, just begin that. Stake your ministry on the power of the gospel, and you will not be disappointed. Success is faithfulness in these simple matters. It is staying focused on these in the world of competing priorities. So be patient. In summary, preach, pray, love, stay. Pretty easy. It even rhymes. <laughs> Preach, pray, love, stay. <clears throat> now, because I have weighted this so heavily to Jeremy, I do want to just say a word to the congregation specifically. I'm just curious. If you are a member or a regular tender of this congregation, raise your hand. I'm going to see where I'm supposed to stare. Oh, well, all over the place. Okay. Thank you. Um, you, too, are given a stewardship when you're given a pastor. I wanted to say a word to you about three things, okay? About money, about marriage, and about, we'll call it moderation. We'll make it easy, three M's. Money, marriage, and moderation. First, about money. Okay, look back at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse 2. Did you notice that phrase there? Not greedy for money. I've heard congregations say, you know, we'll keep him poor, God will keep him humble. That is a suspicious and ungracious attitude to have to someone that you would call as your pastor. Would you entrust him with your souls, but not with the resources God's given you? Galatians 6.6 6 tells us, to share all good things with those who instruct us. Jeremy Young is your primary instructor. Realize that his prospering as your pastor 
is not being forbidden here as greed. Pray and act so that these dear little children, when they grow up, will have nothing bad to say about this church and how it treated his father. One thing that the congregation on Capitol Hill has done so well for me and Connie, they have been generous to us. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that anyone who does not care for his immediate family is worse than an unbeliever. Friend, care well for the yawns. It's very expensive to live in Southern California. And trust them with all you can. And if you're worried you're paying them too much, watch them be good stewards of it. Don't assume they'll keep what they shouldn't keep. You won't regret a culture of generosity that's engendered in a local church. Second, a word about marriage. One main way you can care for Jeremy is to care for his family. If Satan wants to take a pastor out, he merely needs to aim at his wife. Because while you can get another pastor, witness you've got two right here, Melanie can't get another husband. Jeremy is her husband. So care for your pastor's family. Let Melanie do whatever Melanie wants to do. So long as she is supporting, not First Baptist Church Hoss into Heights. That's not her job, except as a church member. No, as long as she is supporting Jeremy and her family. Do not put pressure on Melanie to care for the church directly. Why wasn't she at the meeting I led? Why wasn't she at the Bible study I taught? Don't put pressure on her to care for something instead of her family and her husband. Celebrate limits that Jeremy puts on Melanie's involvement. Congregation, Melanie loves you best by loving her husband best. Remember that. So much wisdom you're getting here this morning. Hope you're appreciating it. <laughs> and a last word to the congregation, and that's, and I just came with the word moderate. I'm not exactly sure how to do this, but I think moderate will work. It starts with the M. Be moderate in your expectations of Jeremy. As gifted and eager a young pastor as he may be. Let me share with you the words of one faithful pastor who had labored for decades with a certain congregation. Then he took his leave of them and he was speaking to them when the new man had been chosen and was sitting there and was about to take over. This is what the old man who had been there 30 or 40 years, their pastor said. This is in New Jersey 200 years ago, but it's still true. He said, For your own sake and your children's sake, cherish. And revere him, whom you have chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you, and he will soon love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half of the time which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence allude to the opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Jeremy was a personal trainer. He does have broad shoulders. But there is enough sin in any congregation to break the strongest pastor's spirit. 
if not sustained by God's Spirit and the congregation's wise kindness. Moderate your expectations of Jeremy. He'll last longer. Shift your dependence to God in prayer. I've spoken for quite some time now. You've been very patient. I don't remember how long it is Jeremy normally preaches, but my guess is it's a little shorter than this. Preaching, praying, personal discipling, and patience. One day before the American Revolution, there was a day of remarkable gloom and darkness and eclipse over the entire New England states, known for years afterwards simply as the dark day, a day when the light was slowly extinguished. I assume it was by an eclipse. The legislature of Connecticut was in session, and as its members saw this unexpected and unaccountable to them darkness during the middle of the day, they shared general awe and terror of the town, and it was supposed by many that the last day the day of judgment had come. And someone in the consternation of the hour moved that they adjourn so they could go home, be with their family. And then, at that moment, there arose an old Puritan legislator, Mr. Davenport of Stanford, and said that if the last day had come, he desired to be found at his place doing his work, his duty, and therefore moved that candles be brought in so that the house could continue its work, so that they could fulfill their duty. There was a quietness in that man's mind the quietness of heavenly wisdom and inflexible willingness to obey present duty. Jeremy, you and I should do our duty in all things like the old Puritan. You can't do more. You should never wish to do less. The ministry has private discouragements and public disappointments aplenty. But in God's kindness, too, it often has compensating blessings even in this life. But we will never be faithful ministers in anything other than appearance if we only consider the ministry in terms of this life. I love that quotation of John Brown in a letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils newly ordained over a small congregation. Quote, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. We must remember what momentous work we're about. And that day, as we're about to sing in a few minutes as we pray, these clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. Brother, live and minister in light of that day. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray you would impress upon our hearts the truth of your word. And we pray that you would equip our brother and hear our prayers for him in these next few minutes we ask. In Jesus' name.